are in a series called Creed, Together We Believe, and we're taking a look uh, at the Apostles' Creed, which is uh, believed by many to be the oldest creed that we have as Christians. You know, the amazing thing is, is our faith is an ancient faith. It didn't just begin um, a hundred years ago or so. Some of us who grew up kind of Pentecostal, charismatic, tend to be, believe, if we're not careful, that it kind of started with us around the early 1900s, but it didn't. It started all the way back with a person named Jesus in the first century. And before we had the Bible in its completed form, right, the first believers in Christ, they had a copy of the Old Testament in Hebrew or Greek, uh, but the New Testament wasn't written. The letters were currently being written and being circulated. And what they saw the need to do was to come together and write down what is it that we believe? What can hold us, what we call, to orthodoxy? What is it we believe so that when people tend to drift trying to try to believe in other things. There's something right here that's a rule, that's a standard saying, this is what we believe on the basis of what God has revealed. And so beginning around the first century, they put this creed together. And so for thousands of years, at least a thousand, maybe more, Christians have been gathering to read this, to reinforce in them, this is what we believe about God. This is what we believe about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And it's amazing to me to understand and know that we are a part of something that is older than us, that is so much bigger than us. And I've had the opportunity to talk to some of you, and I know that this series has been challenging you and has been forcing you to go do some research and to study and maybe even question, is what Josh talking about right? And I just want to say for the record, I think that's awesome. I think that's great. I told you at the beginning of this year it'd be a year of action that I was going to push you and challenge you to grow in your faith. And I hope, I really hope you don't just believe everything I say because I'm standing on this platform. I hope that you study it and you read it. I hope you're spending time uh, reading your Bible on a consistent basis. I challenge you, remember, to do that uh, this year, to spend and serve, spend time every day in prayer, reading your Bible. And uh, I know one thing in particular has been challenging some of you, and that is this whole idea, this phrase, in the creed, this is the Holy Catholic Church. And uh, what I want you to realize is this, and I've had the opportunity to talk to some of you, and, and thank you for that opportunity. A lot of people just have maybe a problem with some things we're doing, and they never say anything, uh, or at least to me, they say it to other people, um, <laughs> and not to me. So I want to thank you for that opportunity. But I, I want you to hear my heart on this. And when we say the Holy Catholic Church, small c, the word Catholic has been around a lot longer than the Catholic Church. And it's a word that in its root, if you take it back to Latin, it means global. It means universal. And that's what these early church fathers were saying. They understood what God was saying and his desire for a family and a church that had no divisions in it. See, God doesn't care about denominations. He doesn't. And you, I want, what I want you to realize as we, we, we work through this creed is this, number one, we're going to take an entire week and talk about what the universal Catholic church, what does that really mean? We're going to take a week to talk about it. But number two, what I want you to realize as you sit here this morning, may you not see yourself as part of Faith Community Church in House Springs, Missouri, but may you begin to understand that there are people all over the world today, every continent, except maybe Antarctica, maybe there's some scientists there having church this morning, we don't know, but that are coming together to worship and give honor and praise and glory to God. Every language that's being spoken, God understands. When we get to heaven, there will be no lines. Are you Lutheran? Are you Methodist? Are you Assembly of God? Are you Nazarene? Are you Catholic? And God's not going to ask that question. He's going to say, do you believe in Jesus? You are part of a global movement, a global church. 
And I want that to sink in. That's what they were communicating. And if you still disagree with me, that's okay. It doesn't bother me. But I want you to see that as we talk about this creed, the most important thing that we're talking about is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This amazing, mysterious trinity of three distinct persons in one essence that makes my head hurt. Last week we talked about God the Father. This week we're going to talk about God the Son. And for the next few weeks we're going to talk about Jesus. He takes, he takes center stage in the midst of this because God put him on center stage. And when we look at the creed, it does four things for us. It provides symmetry. Symmetry is, helps us to become more fully developed, uh, fully shaped followers of Christ. So we're not just focusing on one individual aspect of God, but on his entire counsel of his word and who he is. Provides clarity for some false presuppositions. There's many people in churches today, not just not talking about people outside that, that have some funky beliefs. One of them being that Jesus was created by God, not that he is God or that he's pre-existent and he's co-eternal with God, that he just was created. Some believe that the Holy Spirit's just a force like Star Wars, that he's not actually God. And finally, some are saying that a majority are saying the Bible, although it may be God's word, it has no authority morally, ethically in my life. It's just a collection of sayings of God. So things that are being attacked, provides clarity on that. Community, an understanding of who God is, an understanding of what it means to be part of the family of God globally, not just in a particular denomination or in a, in a, in a city, but the family of God and what the implications of that are. And finally, counsel, because what you believe about God is the most important thing in the universe, and it affects how you counsel yourself and how you counsel other people. We're going to stand here in a moment. We're going to read the creed. I just want to remind you that when we do that, it's simultaneously a great act of rebellion and allegiance. A rebellion against some of the, the popular narratives of the day in our culture, one being materialism that says, I need more to be happy. I need, I need a better job. I need a better car. I need a bigger house. I need more money. I need more fun. I need more vacations. I need more, 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 more to be happy. And in and of the, themselves, none of those things are wrong. But the belief that more will make me happy is so opposed not only to God's word, but it will never make you happy. You can never have enough. The other narrative is progressivism that says that we as human beings are fundamentally getting better, always getting better. And we've made a lot of advancements in a lot of areas, but morally, ethically, we are not getting better. We have not uh, eclipsed right the standard that God has set forth. And when we do this, we are, we are pledging allegiance. Allegiance to who? God. The God of the Bible, who he reveals himself. We are pledging allegiance that he takes first place in our life. So when you do this, if you have some, some uh, misgivings about the creed, you don't agree, that's fine. You don't have to say it. I'm not forcing you. If you're new here this morning and you say that's weird, you don't have to participate. Um, but I want you to consider, though, when you're, when you're saying this, what it is. that You're, you're not saying, I, I am pledging my allegiance to a, a group of sentences called a creed. No, I'm pledging my allegiance to God, the Father, God, the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So would you stand with me? We're going to read this together. I'll start it off. You jump in. Ready? One, two, three. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. 
He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to talk about that second line. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, the Lord. There's three titles given to Jesus there. He is the Christ, the son, and the Lord. The is a definite article, meaning that he is the only one. If it were a or an, an indefinite article, it would imply that there are multiple lords, multiple Christs, multiple sons of God, but he is the definite article, the Christ, the Son, and the Lord. As we talk about him this morning, we're going to really answer a question, and the question is, who do you say that he is? That is the most fundamental and important question you will ever answer in your life, and every single person on the earth who has been, who will be, and who is today has to give an answer to who is Jesus. Who do you say that he is? I want to take a look at a passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. If you have your Bibles, if you have your devices, I want you to turn there. I also, again, I just want to encourage you to take notes. Take notes in this series. Write things down. Learn. Consider them. Reflect on them. Because what you learn here, I would venture to say, is going to be very important for the rest of your life. Not because I'm important, but because the content is important and you have to come to terms with some of these things. So go with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 16. This is Jesus asking his disciples this very question. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Then Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, it's important to understand uh, what's going on here. It says they were in Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was, a, was kind of the crown jewel of the Roman Empire. See, they were, Israel was underneath the Roman Empire. Rome ruled from England all the way to India, huge. But Caesarea Philippi was renamed. It wasn't originally called Caesarea Philippi. Caesar Augustus named it after himself. He renamed it. It was originally called Panius. Now, the reason it was called Panius is because there was a temple to the god Pan. How many of you have pantheism? How many of you ever seen the movie Avatar? You can raise your hand. I went and saw it. I liked it. In, pan, in, in the movie Avatar, we see pantheism in display, which is that God is in everything and God is everything. God is the sun, the moon, the stars, the grass, the trees, the leaves, my emotions, my feelings. And God is in everything. We don't believe that. We believe God created everything, but not everything is God. But here in this location, there was this huge temple to the god Pan. There was also a big temple to Caesar. Herod had built a temple to Caesar. The Roman government said this, there is no god but Caesar. Caesar was supreme. Caesar was a, was a divine being. They worshipped him along with a multiplicity of gods. Roman Empire, when they would conquer a people, they would, they would absorb their religion, absorb their gods because it was easier to rule over the people if they could do that. So Jesus chooses this location. And this location is a location where there is a, a, in the consciousness of the people, a multiplicity of gods. Caesar is God. 
Pan is God. And Jesus chooses this location to say, who do you say that I am? Basically what Jesus is saying, what's the word on the street? He's been going around saying that he is God, that he's healing people, he's teaching. He wants to know what's the word on the street. They say, well, you're, you're like John the Baptist. Uh, you're like one of the prophets. You know, you're like one of these good guys. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Who is it that you say that I am? And we have Peter. Now, Peter, he, he never misses an opportunity to speak ever in the Gospels, ever. Sometimes he's right. Sometimes he's off. This time he's right on the money. He says, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. Now, Peter, what he's saying is he's making a statement. Again, remember the context that he's in. He's saying, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. You are king. You are above all things. You are the king over earthly powers. You are the king over over heavenly powers. He's saying you are king over Pan. You are king over God. Now, the Roman Empire wasn't too keen on someone trying to usurp the authority of Caesar. I mean, he was God. And Peter was saying, I don't believe that Pan is God. I don't believe that Caesar is God. Jesus, I believe that you are God. That's what he was saying. Now, the first of these titles I want to look at is Jesus is Christ. Peter says that you are the Christ. Now, the word Christos is the word in, the Greek, in Greek. Now, the Old Testament, when it was translated from Hebrew into Greek, and they called the translation the Septuagint, the word Christos was used around 20 times or more to refer to or applied to kings or anointed kings. So when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, he was saying, Jesus, you are the king. As we've already said, and not only are you king, you're king over all heavenly and earthly powers. Peter was also saying you are the Messiah. Some of your translations may say that. You are the promised one. You are the anointed one. You are the one that God promised to send us to restore and reconcile not only our relationship to you, but the entire universe and creation. You are the Christ. You are the king. Profound statement, something that Peter could have only said on the basis of revelation, revelation by the Holy Spirit. You are God. Jesus is king. I said last week, we we struggle with the idea of king because we have elected officials, right? We can choose who we want in power. We don't have that opportunity as it comes to God because God is king. Jesus is king and he rules Over every earthly power, there is no president, there is no monarch, there is no prime minister, there is no one in power on the earth today that is greater or has more power or authority than the person of Jesus Christ. He is king, supreme and divine and absolute. He is king. Secondly, Peter says, you are the son of God. Now he says, the son, again, definite article. In the Old Testament, You may see it's common at times where the Bible refers to uh, prophets and righteous men as sons of God. In fact, the New Testament would tell us that we are all sons and daughters of God, right? We, We share in this family and relationship with God. But what Peter is saying here is he's saying you are the unique son of God. Some of us would, would say, based just on statistics, that, okay, if, God, if Jesus is God's son, then he is, he is beneath God, and he had to be created, because if we have sons and daughters, we create them. But no, 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 he's saying he is the son of God. 
We believe that if Jesus is king, we also say that Jesus is God. Therefore, he is not underneath God. He is God. Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father. And I said a lot. What does that mean? Jesus has no beginning and he has no end. He's always been and he will always be. And if he is the son of God, the Bible tells us that God has conferred upon Jesus absolute and supreme authority and power. When Jesus was on this earth, he came to this earth in the form of a baby. He was fully God and fully man. He was not part God and part man. It's one of the great mysteries. Fully God and fully man. When he walked this earth, he walked this earth in supreme and absolute authority and power. There was no demonic force greater than Jesus. No sickness could overwhelm Jesus. No argument could defeat Jesus. No government could put Jesus down. Well, the Roman government killed Jesus. No, Jesus was not murdered. He laid his life down. He willingly subjected himself to the Roman government to be crucified. To be murdered is to be killed against your will. Jesus could have rescued himself. The fact that when Jesus was in the garden and they came to him and says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus at the mention of his name, the power was there. He subjected himself. Nothing, no one has ever been or will ever be greater and more powerful than Jesus. He is the son of God. He was not created. He's preeminent and he's preexistent. Two big words, meaning he's always been and he will always be. And he is king. King. He's the Christ. The son, third part of the creed we're looking at today is he's the Lord. Now, Lord, interesting word. We don't have lords in our society, in our culture, right? We, again, we have presidents, elected officials. We don't have lords. Lords have power and authority. The phrase Jesus is Lord is the most common, one of the most common phrases used to describe Jesus. And it's used over 300 times in the New Testament. That phrase, Jesus is Lord. We go back to the Old Testament. How many of your Old Testaments have the word Jehovah in it? Your translation you use. How many of you have looked at the Old Testament in the past six months to know what it says? Thank you. That was a question that required some participation. How many of yours, instead of Jehovah, it just says Lord, capital L? Okay. The word Jehovah is a Latin word, the Hebrew word for God, the given name for God. The supreme name for God is Yahweh. Yahweh is translated from Hebrew into Greek uniformly as Lord. So when you see that capital L in your Old Testament, it is the name of God. It is Yahweh. So when it says that Jesus is Lord, what it's saying is that Jesus is God. And the New Testament says it over 300 times. He is Lord with a capital L. Jesus is Lord. It is speaking to his divinity. He is God. He's not like God. He does not have God-like attributes. Jesus is God. We said it just a moment ago. He's co-eternal. He has all authority and power given to him because he's God. And that did not cease when he came to this earth. And if Jesus is Lord, then Jesus is the Savior of the world because we believe that God himself entered into this world in the form of a baby See, God was not in heaven and said, hey, I need a volunteer to go to the earth. Will anybody raise their hand? Jesus said, I got it, man. I will do it. 
No, no, no. God, three distinct persons in one essence that I will go to the, to the earth. I will enter into the pain, the brokenness, the suffering, and the sin of humanity because only God can restore and reconcile humanity and his creation. That is the distinctive of Christianity. Every world religion says there's a problem. Humanity, you fix it. Christianity says there's a problem. Humanity, you caused it. But I, God, the supreme, will enter into the brokenness, the pain, the suffering. I will feel it. I will absorb it. I will take it on myself, and I will heal it. Only God can do that. It's important that you understand that as Jesus Christ is your Savior, he died for you, his grace is on display for you, and forgiveness. May you never forget that he's a king, that he's supreme, that he has absolute and final authority. And let me tell you this, he will assume no other position in your life other than king. That's who he is. He's king. You have this infinitely powerful king, but he's not a tyrant. He's not a tyrant. He's not on a power trip, power trip. He does not have an ego trip. He's not trying to, to exercise or flex his authority in your life just to get you to submit. He uses his power to heal, to save, to rescue, and to woo. How many of you guys like that word woo? How many of you in here, how many husbands in here, you're still wooing your wife? One guy raised his hand in the other service, said, I am, but there was no lady sitting next to him, so we couldn't validate that claim. I would, I would like to think that I'm still wooing, my, wooing Lauren, but I'll let her be the judge of that. It was, yep, it was easier when we were first together, right? But woo, what does that mean? That you have an infinitely powerful king that no one can defeat, that nothing can destroy, nothing can take down. He's all powerful, and if he wanted to in a second, could wipe out everything, but yet he's chosen to use his power to save you, to rescue you, and to woo you? What does that mean? He is seeking you. He is trying to hunt you down so that he can save you and forgive you and heal you and rescue you. You have a king who comes to the earth, who gets off of his throne, who makes himself one of us so that he can save, heal, rescue, and restore us. You have an infinitely powerful king who is so incredibly and intensely personal. Last week, we talked about God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth, who's infinitely powerful and intensely personal. Well, if Jesus is God, then he's the same exact thing. Infinitely powerful and intensely personal. Now, that's a mouthful, isn't it? We may be able to go home right now. I've got 17 minutes and six seconds left. (laughs) But if all of that is true, then there are some implications for us. What do we do with this king, Jesus, the Christ, the Son, and the Lord? We come back to these four areas that we've, we've been talking about, symmetry, clarity, community, and counsel. And under, under symmetry, to be a more fully developed follower of Christ, we have to realize that we're going to live in a tension. And that tension is going to be understanding Christ as Savior and Christ as King. Jesus as Savior and Jesus as King. I'll be honest with you, I love to talk about Jesus as Savior. That's easy for me. That's wonderful for me. And we should always do that. I struggle and have struggled. And this series is forcing me to come to terms with and preach more on this fact that Jesus is king and he requires and wants submission. See, that's like a collective groan. Submission. (laughs) We want our kids to submit. But us, the idea of submitting, that is not fun. 
But let me just, again, remind you, we are submitting to a king who uses his power to heal, to save, to rescue, and deliver. And we are trusting that if he is doing that, and if he came to this earth and he subjected himself to pain, suffering, and death, not only did he subject himself to death, but he defeated death. You have a king who defeated death. That's why we, we can say at a funeral of a loved one who believed in Jesus that, that I will see you again, this promise of eternal life because our king defeated death. We say, I can trust you and I can submit to your authority in my life because Jesus wants to assume the driver's seat. You are a passenger with Christ. You are not the driver. Well, I'm driving now. I know you are. How's that working out for you? Contrary to what you want to believe and what you want to feel, you do not get to tell the king what to do. We can make a request, and in his grace and his mercy, he does that for us because not only is he a good king, he's a good father, but he is supreme. He is preeminent, meaning he takes first place. First, he wants you to submit. Not perfect obedience, because none of us are perfectly obedient, but what I'm saying is there should be a desire to desire to do his will to do what he's calling us, asking us, molding us, and shaping us to be. Now, maybe, maybe you don't spend too much time here. Maybe you're spending too much time over here as Christ is king, and you find yourself maybe just being a little bit legalistic and being a little bit not compassionate because you're, he, he's king, and you forgot that he's savior. He is fully revealed as savior, full of grace and mercy and love, and full of power and authority, and none greater than him. It is the, the, the understanding of him as both that enriches us and shows us who he is and shapes us, and we submit to both. I submit to him as my Savior, and I submit to him as my Lord. That's why we say Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He takes first place. My question to you is, is are you allowing him to be king? You've allowed him to be Savior, but the moment you allowed him to be Savior, you said that you agreed for him to be king. Fundamental struggle that we'll always have. Submitting to the authority and the kingship of Jesus Christ. And he will always assume first place. Always. You don't have to wonder. I'll say it again. Always. He's king. He's king. We have to be more fully shaped in that. Clarity. What what needs to be clarified? What needs to be clarified is who do you say that he is? That's what you have to clarify. Everyone will answer that question. See, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? He wasn't just directing at them. He was directing at every single person on the face of the earth, then, now, and for all time. See, there are hardly anybody that would would refute or debate the historicity of Jesus. What do you mean? That he existed. Historically, no one really argues that Jesus existed. He's in the historical record. What we refute, what we debate is, is he God? Muslims believe in Jesus. They believe he was a great prophet called Isa. In fact, they believe in the virgin birth more passionately and ardently than most Christians do today. He's a great prophet. Jews will say he existed. He's one of many false claims to the Messiah, but he existed. Hindus will say Jesus existed. They believe he was an incarnation of the god Vishnu who, would, who uh, throughout periods in time in history would show up to benefit humanity and help humanity. He's just another one of their gods or incarnations of their gods. Atheists, agnostics, they say, yeah, he, he existed. He was a great moral teacher, a great example to emulate. 
people who would just be maybe unbelievers, they would say that, yeah, yeah, Jesus existed historically. However, he's mostly or largely irrelevant to my life. Great. He's like, you know, Abraham Lincoln. Dig some good stuff. There's this last group of people that we would call nominal Christians, if that can even really be a label. What's a nominal Christian? Kind of like a cultural Christian. Hey, I go to church. Ah, Jesus is cool. I believe in God. It's, it, it, culturally, it's still somewhat acceptable. And you would view Jesus as a great add-on, but not as king. He's a great addition to my life. I think it really benefits me. In the age of pragmatism, right? We look at Jesus like a 401k portfolio. I did this, this. Yeah, I could use that. Yeah, need a little help here, need a little help there. But not the position of king. Because that's the only rightful position he can assume. And so none of those, while, while they are true to some degree, he's a good prophet, he's a good dude, he did a lot of great stuff, he existed. None of those are sufficient. Because none of those are entirely true. He is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Lord. He is King. He is God. C.S. Lewis, a brilliant Christian apologist, professor, who was once a very devout atheist. After his conversion, he wrote a very famous thing where he said that we all have to come to a decision of who Jesus is, but there's really only three choices you have. He's either Lord, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. If he's Lord, we understand that. He's God. He's a lunatic in the fact that if he believes he was God, but he wasn't, and he died and he was never resurrected, then he's just crazy. There's a dude in Brazil right now that believes he's Jesus. I would say that he's crazy because he's not. How many of you have met somebody on the side of the road or downtown who believed they were God? Let me ask, have you ever met someone who's crazy? Yeah, he's crazy. Or he's a liar. He knew he was not God all along, and yet he claimed to be. Those are really the only three categories Jesus can fit. And if you say he's not a lunatic, he's not a liar, you're left with he's a Lord, and if he's the Lord, then he has to be king of your life. He has to assume the primary position. And he does that by being a savior and forgiving us and dying that death for us. But that's the clarity that we have to come to. Who is we? Who do, who do we say that he is? And if he's Lord, then that leads to the third thing, which is community. Understanding what it means to be part of the community of God and the implications of that. If Jesus is Lord of your life, if he's directing you, if you're following him, the question I ask is what, is, what separates Christianity from every other religion? What separates it? What separates the Christian community from the world? And there's one word that I want to focus in on today, and it's this word incarnational. What does that mean? Well, to, to incarnate means to enter into and become something, and Jesus is incarnational in that he entered into humanity. He became one of us. See, the problem of pain is one of the biggest arguments against Christianity. If there is an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God, why does pain exist? Anybody ever ask that? Why does it exist? Now, the Bible identifies that there is a problem of pain. However, the Bible doesn't give a clear, concise answer as to necessarily why 
but it gives something I believe is way better and something that we have to trust and hold our hand, uh, hold our hat to is this, is, is that instead of rejecting the idea that there's pain, God acknowledges it. And rather than distancing himself from it, he chose to enter into it. We have a God who said, I recognize there's pain. I didn't create the pain, but I will enter into it and I will subject myself to the pain, the discomfort, the worry, the anxiety, the sickness, the disease, and the brokenness of humanity. And not only will I feel it and experience it, I will absorb it into myself. I will die death and I will be resurrected and I will defeat it. That's the God that we serve. That's the distinctive, that you have a king who subjected himself to that. And if that's true, then what it means to be a Christian severely changes, and it's more than just sitting on a comfortable seat on a Sunday morning. And what it means is, is that when we see the brokenness and the pain and the hurt of the world, we should not pray, God, get me out. I can't wait till you come back. What we should do is realize if I believe in Jesus and he is in me and he entered into and became part of this, then I having the life and power of Christ in me need to be incarnational and enter into the brokenness, the pain, the suffering and the hurt of those around me because I am a dispenser of the life of Christ. That's what that means. That we do not build walls in our churches to keep the world out. We open our doors, we open our arms, we open ourselves, and we embrace the world because apart from Christ, we are broken, hurting, suffering, full of pain, and without hope. See, what we have to fight the urge to do as Christ followers is fight the urge to become a pretty church and realize we'll always be a messy church. God doesn't care what this place looks like. God doesn't, because all of this is, is brick and mortar and stone and it will decay. What God cares about is what's sitting in these seats every week, who you are impacting. And he says, I've called you to run to the mess, not away from the mess. I've given you the power and the authority to push back darkness. And when you see brokenness, hurting, suffering, when you see sin, may you weep and may you grieve and may you get in the dirt and may you help. May you help. That's what's being, being part of the Christian community is. It's not somebody else's responsibility. It's not a pastor's. It's not an evangelist. It's not a building or an institution. It is you because we are the church. We are people. Some of you are praying that God would eliminate broken, hurting people, inconveniencing people in your life. And God will not answer that prayer because God has sent them to you. He sent them to you. Because you have inside of you what they need. My prayer for myself and for you is not that you would have more convenience and more comfort, but God, that God would inconvenience you and make you more uncomfortable. Because God has not called us to a safe, comfortable life. If we are Christ followers, there will come a point in time where God will ask you to take what seems like a dumb risk and bet the farm for his glory. Hey, be a good steward. Save your money. Prepare for the future. But may you realize everything that God has given you, like Lauren has said today, is not for you alone, but it's for other people. Safety, comfort, convenience, none of God's plan. We have eternal security. We know we will spend eternity with him. That he's promised. 
Let that sit in you. Let that sink into you. And if I'm going to say this, if, if you are more concerned with a particular amount of words in this creed than you are with people around you who don't know Jesus, may that say something. Not that you can't be concerned. I'm glad you're concerned. But I want the bigger concern in your life to be that there are broken, hurting people around you that God has called you to. May that's what keeps you up at night. May that rest in your heart and in your soul. The Great Commission is our commission. Every single one of us in our context, in our workplaces, and in our families. That's what it means to be part of the community of God. We see the mess. We run to the mess. The first missionaries that left the shores of the United States following what we would say the Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s. They bought one-way tickets, one-way tickets to the country they felt God had called them to. Many of them, many of them did not take suitcases. They packed their belongings in coffins. Knowing they would never return return to the shores of America, they would probably never see their their loved ones again. Why? Because they'd been called. Why? Because they, they recognized the weight of the, the, the calling of God on their life and they were going to go and take a risk maybe a dumb risk for the glory of God to be all in the reason why I'm harping on this so much is because I'm concerned that at least in our part of the world we are more concerned with God making us comfortable making us happy and making us convenient than we are with recognizing the call of God on our life to be inconvenienced to be uncomfortable to know that he's faithful and he shall provide but I'm sorry I probably will never ever preach sermons that just make you feel comfortable Because the longer I've been a pastor, because I didn't want this. Listen to me. I didn't pray for this. I didn't go looking for this. I spent more time trying to get out of this. But what I know beyond the shadow of a doubt is that God called me here. I've been more uncomfortable, more inconvenienced, and have grown more in the past four years of my life than any other part. And I'm not saying that so that you say, oh, well, look, this great dude. No. See, I, I was ordained this past Wednesday. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> getting all these claps, Tim. <laughs> so ordained this past Wednesday, and I'll be honest with you, I thought it was just going to be a formality. I'm going to do this. I promised my grandfather that I would. It'll just be a formality. We're sitting there, and I got my suit on, right? I don't normally wear a suit, but I had a suit on because we're supposed to, because you're more holy when you have a suit. <laughs> and at the end of the service, they brought us up to the front and you stand before the leadership. You hand them your Bible. Open to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I had my Bible. Opened up here. And the pastor, the leader of our thing, began to read and he said, preach the word at all of God. Be prepared whether... The time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. And he went on to say a few other things, and he said, I have this commission I want to give you, and I want you to repeat after me. And I thought it was a formality until it came time to start repeating that, and the moment I began to say the words, hmm, I felt the weight of what it meant. And then, then it just got worse because they said, now get on your knees. And so we got on our knees, and they put this sash thing over us. It's called a stole. 
took out oil, anointed us with oil, and they laid their hands on us and they prayed for us and they commissioned us into the call of God in our lives. I lost it. What I realized in that moment is, is there's nothing that is a formality with God. What I do believe is that God has called every single one of us, maybe not to be a pastor, not to be a missionary. I'm not asking you to pack your belongings and put them in a coffin. What I'm asking you is to realize that Jesus is king. And he's called you to something. He's asked you to risk something. And it's not just for you, it's for the benefit of other people. Who is he? He's everything. I want to read this to you. And then we're going to sing just a brief song. A song that says, Jesus, I love you. I want you to sing the words of the song here in a few moments with the understanding of everything that we've talked about this morning. You have a king, infinitely powerful, intensely personal. I want you to stand with me. I want you to see these words on the screen behind me. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, it answers who the person of Jesus is, and this will make you have to think and scratch your head. And, but who is Jesus? This is who he is. Here's what Paul writes to the church of Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross.